Hello and welcome to the Undercut Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Jesse Billington, and I'm joined by just the one co-host this evening, Timo. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm not doing too badly, actually. I'm getting getting into the Christmas spirit of things. Of course, we're recording this on the 13th of December. It's well into the holiday season now, and um, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, we've had a nice break from Formula One for a couple of weeks, so it seems apt to do season review now when we've had that distance to kind of see was that what we thought of it or was it not and you should have to listen on to find out yeah we've had some time to mull it over of course you haven't heard the usual third voice on this podcast we would have ellie may on with us but she's currently recovering from injuries sustained in the line of duty as a podcaster she walked under a perilously suspended piano which then fell on her uh, when she stood up not only was she crumpled into an accordion but also all of her teeth turned piano keys and fell out making a plink plink plonk noise on the pavement so uh, we wish her well as she gets better and um hopefully she'll be back in due course definitely by season's start i think is what she's told me does that mean she's not coming on then it does indeed mean she's not coming on. Thank you. Is that it? That was the preconditioned bit, was it? Okay, with that out of the way, we've got a little bit of news to dive into, actually, because despite the fact that we've been off the air for what feels like an eon, but it's probably been two weeks, um, most of which I spent with norovirus, didn't really need that detail. Uh, there's still some news to go over, so we'll dive into that. And the first thing is one that really came out of nowhere, and it's the fact the Spanish Grand Prix has reportedly signed a contract to host the race in Madrid from 2026 for 10 years. Um, this would see Barcelona lose its place on the calendar. We're not having any double Spanish Grand Prix, and it's in a surprise to no one really a street circuit within Madrid. Um, so. It goes around the IFVMA Convention Centre, which uh, um, it's got a roundabout in it. And um, yeah, Spain has loads of... As has been shown already with countless memes and GIFs about how well that's going to... Yes, yeah. Um, Yeah, I mean, to be fair, um, what's the IndyCar one that's usually like second or third in the season? That has the sort of little... Oh yeah, Long Beach. Which, which to be fair, up until the first year I started watching, which was last year, that had no incidents with that. And then... As soon as I started watching, everyone seemed to think, oh, there's a roundabout there. Let's drive into it. And it was brilliant. So many people crashed at that point in Long Beach. So I think they should keep the roundabout in if we go to Madrid. Um, but the fact is, Spain has loads of other racing circuits and decent FIA grade one ones at that. So we've got so many brilliant circuits in Spain. MotoGP utilizes a couple of them. They provide fantastic racing. So what's with the constant Formula Eification of F1? Why more street circuits? Yeah, it does seem a weird thing that Formula E and F1 are swapping around a bit on that side of things. But also, it's it's been one of those rumours about Madrid that's been around for a while, but you kind of hoped it would just be that. And again, I'm not sure if... Because none of this is confirmed, confirmed yet, but they also wanted to be a night race, which leave that alone. We've got enough as it is. And the whole point in Singapore being the only night race was that it was meant to be unique. And if you start doing something all the time, it no longer becomes a unique. Um, and yeah, we don't need another street circuit anyway. It's getting to the point where it's getting perilously close to 50-50, which we don't need. And we're already looking at street tracks on the calendar thinking, you know, we can get rid of a few of you easily because, again, we don't need that many of you if we want street racing we go to formula e we watch the macau grand prix xyz and yeah it's no one really asked for it no one wants it and i know 
Barcelona has not been the best Grand Prix of the season over the last few years, but I'd still prefer that to another bloody street race. <laughs> this isn't yeah. Fast and Furious. This is the thing, yeah. Like Barcelona is not great, but equally, it's not a street race. And I mean, pre- we think street races are sometimes great, but I mean, look at Baku. This year was a bit dull, and Baku has previously been a bit interesting or it sort of swings from being interesting to cac but with the current setups and the current style of car i think we're looking at street circuits being a bit pants i think las vegas got lucky because the circuit was so green and had so little grip it turned out to be interesting singapore was good because of course we had lawson out qualifying the red bulls and stroll crashing in q1 um, well, it's important to note as well that vegas we have the one off there so we don't know quite what we're doing with that singapore I don't think there's ever really been a bad race. You just had good and great. Mm. Everywhere else, Saudi was built for the sake of spice, shall we say, for being diplomatic. Miami's done nothing. Uh, Baku has been pretty good on the whole, because it does, but I put that down to more to the regulations than anything. And, well, we don't... Monaco, you leave it there, because even if the racing's not perfect, that's more down to the sheer size of the bloody cars more than anything you can see that with any other category where they've got smaller cars you can overtake and you can do stuff that's plenty you don't need you've got already three night races there you've got a classic Grand Prix circuit you've got a daytime street race which is great with Baku at most you could maybe rotate but you don't need to keep adding stuff onto it it's just not necessary and I mean if you think of Canada and Australia technically they're street circuits as well because they're not race track tracks so Christ, leave it on. You don't need more. Yeah, I, I don't think we We've need... We've got plenty. Yeah, I don't think we need any additional ones, any street circuits, certainly. Like, could we have not just sort of gone to a different Spanish circuit just to try and mix it up before we decide to If you wanted a street, street race circuit? in Spain, and if you wanted it at night, revive Valencia. This is the other option. At least Valencia did give us some interesting racing, even if it was a bit of a cack circuit to watch. Like, it didn't look you great say on telly. Hamilton drama crashing and Mark Webber going flying through the air, Schumacher's yeah, podium. It, There's some memorable moments. It was it. an interesting circuit for the races it provided, but, like, visually, it wasn't stunning in the same way that, like, Canada and Australia are visually stunning street True. circuits True. where you whip past again, the trees you can and everything. Pump, the amount of money that's going to get pumped into Madrid as a result of doing this, though, you could easily pump into Valencia and revitalise the entire area if you wanted to. To be fair, that area of Valencia has sort of... Oh, yeah, it's gone downhill a little bit, so... Quite literally by the do it. You could... It, there'd be a great story in there, and you could make it all green and environmentally friendly and meeting your 2030 goals, and yada, yada, yada. Do I have to do everything for me with Formula 1? And equally, if you did revive it, it'd then give you also a location to race Formula E as well, but... Uh, yeah. And then, then the you get... We know? Then you could have them on the same weekend. You could have one as a feeder series to the other. It would be interesting. It would draw more eyes to Formula E. But no, they've just sort of... Basically, Madrid has gone, we've got some pesos. Do you want them? <laughs> and uh, Formula One's gone, yes, of course we do. So um, mm. speaking of uh, yeah. circuits with money, of course, we've got the 2024 sprint calendar. That has also been announced in our little off- mini off-season so far. Uh, we've got China, Miami, Austria, America, Brazil, and Qatar. Good picks, bad picks? I know you're pretty ambivalent towards the sprint in its entirety. Well, yes, I mean, but if we have to have them, I'll be interested in China just because I'm looking forward to China as I really like the circuit. Miami... Couldn't care less. It won't make it more interesting. Austria, sick to death of that at this point. 
Cota pointless. It was a terrible sprint race this year. Did absolutely nothing. Risen and Qatar, fair enough. So 50-50. Yeah, I think that that's a that's a fair argument there, really. Um, yeah, I'm interested in the China one. We haven't seen China for donkey's years on the calendar now. We would have last seen it in 2019, I want to say. Am I accurate with that? Yeah, statement? race 1000. Which yeah. was then suitably dog to go with such a investigation. Yeah, F1 is sort of really hyping itself up to be nothing at all. Um, so yeah, 2019 was the last time we've seen it. So it's going to be five years since we last raced in China. Obviously, the circuit's been used since then in things like Chinese F4 and so on. So it's not going to be a completely dead circuit like when we returned to Turkey. But it's going to be interesting to see how the new cars go there, especially through that very snaily turn one section. It's It's going to be good. Yeah, it's it's yeah. I'm just looking forward to all of it. I'm hoping they don't make any changes to it last minute or anything like this. It's just it's perfectly fun track as it is, and a lot of the drivers currently on the grid don't have experience, experience with there. it. And even the ones that do, it's been five years. Yeah, this is very true. Like anyone who joined in 2020, 2021, so we're not. Oh yeah, and so you've got Lewis, you've got Valtteri, Ricardo, Alonso. After that, it gets tricky to think of who Perez probably. After Perez. that, it's tricky to think who actually would have raced there. Ocon, Gasly, Leclerc, Albon, Norris will have done. Russell will have done. But only like one race. Yeah, one race in the old style F1 car. Joe will have done in his feeder series, I want to assume. Um, you think so? Yeah. Sergeant won't have done. Uh, Albon have, won't. No, Albon will have done. He will have done it when he was at Toro Rosso. Oh, yeah, I suppose. Um, yeah, but again, I'm just thinking it's one race virtually counts as nothing, though. Yeah, one race in again a very old style of chassis. Like it, it's mm, it's going to be interesting, and there's going to be a lot to learn. Um, so we'll see how that one pans out as it comes. Of course, we mentioned a couple of drivers there, Ocon and Gasly, who of course race for Alpine, and there is some news out of the Enstone-based team with Davide Brivio splitting from them after three years. No word on where he'll head or if the French outfit will bring in someone to fill the role of Director of Racing Expansion Projects. Um, I think that some of Davide Brivio's role has been about getting Alpine into the world endurance class and going from there. So, of course, now Alpine have achieved that, he's not really got anywhere to expand the team beyond so they've sort of got rid of him but equally this has been something that's echoed throughout Alpine's personnel management across the season let's say they've changed so many of their team and do we think that's why we've not seen them perform as well as expected? It's definitely a contributing factor I mean consistency seems to be the one thing they're allergic to the most this year and yeah, it's kind of just not surprising to see yet another person leaving the team. It's kind of, do you want to have another role in here? Not really. I'm going to go somewhere else. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see right. where he heads. Will we replace him? Maybe? Yeah, it's, there's really, it's it's Alpine interests. We're all scratching our heads and they're scratching their heads too because I think we've got about as much idea of what's going on as they do and we're looking at each other going, you know you've got to sort you out, right? Well, that's that's not our job. I mean, you could hire us. But that's that's not actually our job yet. And I also don't know if that would be wise to hire us. I mean, it would be interesting. And not just yeah. us collectively, as in you and I, but just us as in the entire F1 community looking at you going, you know you've got to fill those roles, right? Yeah. Right? Although I think them hiring you and I to be sort of uh, racing directors across classes would be quite interesting. 
especially considering we'd be in charge of a French team. Yeah. I think that's all I need to say there. Yeah, two people that have previously had views on the French. Though I will say at this point, actually, as much as I often joke about it, I do quite like the French. I'm a bit of a Francophile, if I may. Um, anyway, before we go too far down that route, we'll jump quickly to Extreme E, where news came out, I think it was today even, uh, that Tanner Faust and Emma Gilmore are leaving their Extreme E team. So they're leaving McLaren. And uh, no word yet on who will be replacing them, but who do we want to see in those seats? What You're the, you're the big sort of upcoming talent hotshot spotter here who, who do you think we're going to see approaching McLaren's Extreme E team it would make sense for them to keep the driver in that they had already replacing Emma Gilmore because she'd been out on injury after a big crash a couple of rounds ago in Hedahosas and she did a nice job and you want a bit of consistency and I think if you're looking to have that balance within a team of youth and experience and in Hedda's case youthful experience because she has been in and out of Extreme E in various different teams keep her in in that second seat who knows we have so many drivers coming in and out and trying things out with extreme that you could arguably get sebastian Loeb or nasser latia switching teams and going there or you could just have someone brand new it's kind of hard to hard to tell who's going to be in there i mean mclaren also have a range of other drivers available to them from their vast array of just driver programs etc um so I'm not sure. I'm trying to think who else could be. No one's coming to mind as kind of a an obvious contender, but I wouldn't mind someone new either, um, either from the world of rallying or Nitro Rallycross or something like this, where it makes sense at least that they're there. I'm looking at, uh, you've got Nicholas Grunholm, I think, in World Rallycross, who is the only one there who hasn't been in Extreme Egypt yet, I don't think. So it's going to be interesting, but it's also... That kind of silly season for a couple of teams because I know that Clara Anderson's not going to be with ACT for next year, so there's a seat open up there. And as Robert Gex Racing proved back in season one when they won the championship, they have no trouble picking one of the drivers that helped them get that championship out of the team either. So we could see some very silly stuff yet, and you could get all kinds of wild moves all over the shop, which is why Extreme is quite fun in that respect as well. It's not like F1 at the moment where you'd be lucky if one or two seats change. This is, we could swap entire teams out just for the sake of it. Mm. I think possibly picking from the classic rally scene, I know that Seb Perez is a name that's doing very well at the moment. He campaigned a Lancia Stratos on the Roger Albert Clark uh, sort of rally across the UK uh, last month. And he's a fantastic mm. helmsmith when it comes to off-road stuff. Equally, I reckon, I think I'm right in saying it's Oliver Solberg, uh, son of Petter yes. Solberg, very handy chap behind the he's wheel on the loose stuff. I reckon he'd be a perfect shoe-in for McLaren's Extreme Mead team. If anything, I wouldn't mind that. Fun. I wouldn't mind that either. But also just from, I was trying to think of anyone hyped McLaren, just for the sake of we see everyone and their dog from all over the place until the racing categories come into it from new and old motorsport eras. Mika Hacken, why not? Oh, that's not a ridiculous concept. I can see Mika doing it for a bit of a laugh. Hmm. And again, it's kind of, you've got a wide enough calendar in terms of there's a massive gap between rounds and also you've got a lot of experience in one thing and doesn't necessarily guarantee that you're going to be good or bad. You just kind of learn as you go and it's extreme for reason. As long as you survive some of the races, you're doing well. So you just have to outlast your competitors. I think he has done a little bit of rallying, like the sort of grassroots stuff. Uh, back in race of champions, I yeah. think. 
So it'd be interesting to see him make that move. But anyway, we'll jump into our final news story, which is a little more sensible, but also just as much nonsense. Um, this largely revolves around the allegations that were thrown at Toto and Susie Wolf last month. Was this last month? Was this even this month? Was this December? That was this month. It all happened at the beginning of this month and was over as quickly as it arrived because, well, it was nonsense. Yeah, F1 Business, the slightly dodgy magazine in the UK that alleged that W Series failed because it wasn't sexy. So that gives you sort of the par that we're working on when it comes to journalism. Um, they alleged that, was it that Susie Wolf was acting as an insider communicator for Toto Wolf and Mercedes? I think that's the gist I of it. I think it was slightly the other way around. She had information that she could only have gotten from Toto being inside a meeting that he uh-huh. was in that other people wouldn't have been able to, but it was all pretty much hearsay and very vague hearsay at that because there was we're we're all just sitting there waiting down and we do we support her because this is a pretty serious allegation here and that's surely if i have taken this so seriously there must be all kinds of evidence that they've got uh to be even opening investigation to to verify all this and then everyone just kind of sat around and went wait you you don't actually have any proof of anything whatsoever like at all there isn't even like a blurry photograph of Bigfoot in, in the background somewhere where you can maybe make something out? No? Okay, well, I don't know what the hell you were thinking though. Yeah, it, it sort of, it was a concept that seemed to have materialised out of nowhere uh, with no evidence to back it up. And then... And made worse by the fact that she and everyone else found out at the same time they didn't even talk to her privately beforehand and say, look, we're going to be doing this. Which is usually the kind of dumb thing of we're going to inform the person or the team that we're investigating We'd maybe like a five minute head start on and everyone else just to for the sake of it's polite. Yeah. Nothing else. Which was it was just a bit odd. Um yeah. But ultimately coming from F1 business, not wholly surprising that that's the level they're working to. Um, but yeah, that's that's pretty much a quick recap of the news that's happened since we last recorded a podcast um so we'll dive into the main crux of what this is supposed to be which is a review of the 2023 formula one season and we we were talking about this before we hit record and we reckon this is going to be a bit short from here onwards because it's not really been a season where much has happened mercifully short some would say yes yeah it means we can get on to talk because of the season not because of us but yes yeah, because of the season, but it means we can get on to talking about Formula 2 and Formula 3 a lot quicker. Um, but anyway, we'll jump straight in. We'll go kick off with qualifying. And I've done some totting up of the head-to-heads, not including the sprints and and including the sprints as well. Um, Albon, in both instances, tops the charts. He dominated Sargent 22 to nil and 28 to nil, if you're including the sprint qualifying. If we include the sprint qualifying, just so you can get the broadest picture possible. Um, Albon 28 to nil, Verstappen 25 to three against Perez, Alonso 24 to four against Stroll, Bottas 19 to nine against Joe. Norris achieved the same consistency against Piastri 19 to nine. Sonoda again scored the same consistency against all of his opponents 19 to nine, 10 to two against DeVries, six to four against Ricardo, and it was a three all tie against Lawson, interestingly. Leclerc was 18 against 10 to Sainz, Hulkenberg 18 to 10 against Magnussen, Gasly and Ocon 17 to 11. 11, and Russell and Hamilton pretty equally matched on 15 to 13. If you don't include the sprints, Russell and Hamilton tie on qualifying stats, which is uh, quite interesting. I think the two stats that amuse me the most there are Verstappen and Perez for obvious reasons, and then Leclerc and Sainz, because despite being 18-10 ahead overall, 
Sainz finished way ahead of him in the championship standings, because of course he did with Leclerc's, well, Leclerc's. Leclerc's Leclerc level of luck across the season. Yes, it was very, very interesting in that regard. Uh, but yeah, I think the, the qualifying paints a relatively sort of interesting picture of the season, actually. In some cases, it's quite truthful to what we saw happen with the likes of Hulkenberg against Magnussen, the likes of Sonoda against mm. his opponents, Norris against Piastri. But like you said, when it comes to Leclerc Sainz, it was the opposite way around, really. We saw Sainz have the more consistent sort of races, but uh, Leclerc often... And Gasly and Ocon as well, it's this curious thing of it doesn't... It matters for them the least because of the season they had both individually and as a team. It was this doesn't matter because chances are you're not finishing the race anyway. And even when you do, it's going to be very middle of the road. Mm. So it sort of makes sense. They were fairly close together in that regard. Some other stats that I've sort of spotted and compiled and screenshotted from hither and thither. Um, the interesting ones were driver average finishing positions. This one's quite interesting. I've obviously averaged out the finishing positions of all the drivers if they finish the race, it seems. And it shuffles things around a little bit. Verstappen comes out on top 1.275. So I reckon he'll be going for the... 1.00 next year. I think that's that's going to be his end game here. Perez had an average finishing position of 4.2 though, so he's the second highest. There is a big gap behind Verstappen. Curious. <laughs> it's, it's curious, but also as much as it speaks for Perez's up and down season, it speaks for Verstappen's sort of consistency not consist- consistency. That was it. I was getting my T's in the wrong place. Consistency. Um, so third that was place, the right word you were thinking of. So. Third place, however, up two from where he finished in real life with 4.88 as an average finishing position, Leclerc. So, of course, when he finished the races, he wasn't doing too badly. It was just a case of whether he was the finished key thing there of yeah. finishing the races. Or, or start them when it comes to things like Brazil. Um, obviously, that demotes Hamilton and Alonso. Down, uh, they finished with 4.9 and 5.6 as average finishing places. Sainz goes up one, 5.68. Russell up one, 6.11. Norris, interestingly, drops two places in this. Uh, average finishing position of 7.42. Stroll goes up one, as does Ocon, who goes up two, actually, with an average finishing place of ninth, which isn't too shabby. But again, that heavily relies on the whole finishing aspect. Doesn't mean he also overtakes Gasly, uh, who finishes with 9.68. The other interesting ones are Bottas drops down the ranking. He loses two places with an average finish of 13.36. And Piastri, who has an average finish of 9.63, also drops two. So a couple of shuffles around when it comes to looking at the sort of average finishing places. It, it sort of, again, it depends on how you read the season as to the story you get. And I did a little bit of digging into that as well. When you start averaging things out and look at points per kilometre raced, the constructor's standing shakes out as normal, apart from Ferrari and Mercedes, which swaps the other way around. Ferrari raced 638 kilometres less than Mercedes this season, though the equivalent of two drivers not doing a race at all, um, plus some. Uh, so over two Grand Prix less, yeah. And they scored more points per 300 kilometres, 10.07 points per kilometre versus uh, point by three every 300 kilometres versus 9.63 every 300 kilometres. In theory, isn't that surprising considering you've got more points in less space there? Yeah, so it, it isn't that surprising, but it's amazing that Ferrari was able to achieve that sort of efficiency with, is, is more... Is it is, the, it is a very Ferrari sort of statistic. I'll give you that. 
but equally doing it by 300 kilometers is roughly a grand prix and that means that mercedes per grand prix were score weren't quite scoring 10 points every grand prix whereas ferrari were contrast red bull not that it helped them not that it helped them but contrast that to red bull who for every 300 kilometers they drove scored over 20 points 20.04 by my average because max won most of them so that's also not too surprising either yeah it means that they were essentially guaranteed an average of at least 25 because they've won pretty much every every race apart from singapore it's, it's an interesting way to look at it when you start putting in the averages and the way that it tells a slightly different story um Speaking of sort of a different story, I think the big story, of course, was Max Verstappen's records across the season. And he now has a 100% completion record this season, every lap of every race, which I think is damn impressive, really, not only for his ability to keep it on the track, but Red Bull's reliability as well. It's very silly. Very silly. I mean, it's impressive, don't get me wrong, but it's silly. And don't don't get me the wrong way, as impressive it was. I would not like, I'd be happy if I don't see that again anytime soon from any team, never mind just Red Bull. It's kind of like, okay, you've gone, you've done that. That's all very well and good. But can we get back to competition now, please? Yeah, the, the dominancy is impressive as you, it you've is. You've got nothing but between you, the first time, Ferrari back with Schumacher and Hamilton with Mercedes. We've kind of seen a bit of everything in terms of what dominance looks like. We don't need to see these are the little bits where it's kind of like completing the video to 100%. You don't need those now. We've got 95%. We're happy with that. Leave it alone. I mean, when it's when you said when it comes to completing the video game to 100%, there's a, there's a list of other stats that Max Verstappen's achieved. Most points scored oh, in yeah, season ever. 92% of all the points available to a single racer. He scored 92%. Essentially, that's, that's an A-star performance. That's really quite impressive. Most wins in a season, most consecutive wins, most podiums in a season, most laps led in a season. First drivers lead more than a thousand laps in a season and finished every race. Most sprint wins in a season. Obviously, the latter two are very much reliant on the modern start of seasons with sprint races and lots of Grand Prix to allow for lots of laps, but yeah, that's just a little bit nuts. Um, obviously, it's worth mentioning that, of course, Alonso and Leclerc tie on points with Alonso winning out on countback, his wealth of third places beating Leclerc. So um, Alonso's strongest start to the season, despite the fact they didn't really play out as strong to a finish as we anticipated, was enough to really cling on to the relatively high finishing position, which is quite good. Also doing Alonso things. Yeah. And Leclerc getting to miss out on kind of a very Leclerc thing as well, though. Yeah, Leclerc doing Leclerc things as well, I think is quite good. And of course, the, the finishing sort of order around that part of the grid, of course, Leclerc and Alonso 206, Sainz 200 and Norris 205 is very typical of um, sort of the, the exciting midfield or sort of behind the front row battle we've had this season. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's Leclerc's last two races in particular really salvaged him there out of it because, again, it's also kind of Carlos luck and Ferrari luck for him to be the only guy to win a race outside of Red Bull and finish behind Leclerc. Mm. Yeah, quite odd in that regard. I think that speaks a bit more for despite his luck, his Leclerc's consistency. Um Another interesting record we had this year was there was no British anthem on the podium for the first time since 1952. Yeah, and 
as much as we could be annoyed at Mercedes for this, you've got to argue this year McLaren let the side down weirdly because they had weirdly more opportunities to do so. Mm. And you just think if Norris had decided to put up any kind of a fight against Verstappen in Cota, we could have had that and we wouldn't still be taking the mick out of him for not winning a race. And he could have kept that streak going, but instead we're, we've we've left that broken. And uh, I hope that's not a sign of things to come because we've got that's just us from being British biased perspective. We're going to have a little bit of it, but it's just it it does it's been on the on the um, podium for at least once a year every year since fifty two. It does seem right to say it, it's weird to not have it. Yeah. It. Yeah, Norris would have certainly brought it along. It's interesting that McLaren doesn't get the Kiwi national anthem because, of course, Bruce McLaren Kiwi, the team was founded by a Kiwi, but it's based out. I was of more UK. thinking McLaren because Lando would having, get it. Yeah, Lando having it would at least give us the bridge. Yeah, but even that. Yeah, but even if it was going to be one of the two drivers winning a Grand Prix, it would have arguably been Lando this season. That would have given us the British national anthem. Um, like I said, of course, we haven't had it since '52. The first time we had the British or the sort of start of that streak with the British National Anthem was Mike Hawthorne in 1953 where he won the French Grand Prix at Rennes with Ferrari. And that's, like, consider the the huge structural changes that Formula One's been through since 1953 when it was giant naturally aspirated front-engined cars to where we are now. The British Grand Prix has been sort of, it's been there. And then just say, and, and, and that was a time where you could still get points for a Grand Prix finish if your car clocked out and you, you could push it over the line. Yeah. That's like, that's kind of how big a change we've had from then till now. Yeah, if, if you came sixth by result, you came sixth and would get points. Um, even if your car was on fire and upside down in a different bit of Germany to where the podium was. But mm. anyway, um, speaking of Germany and rather Mercedes, uh, they have been winless for the first time in 12 years. Which is, yeah, again, it's it's partly down to the fact that they spent so long on the wrong design. Singapore was arguably their best Kind of for it, Kota possibly could have been another one, but again, we would have lost out on that, which would have been very frustrating. Uh, but could have maybe saved the national anthem statistic because even though it would have been taken away, we still would have heard it. So I guess that would have counted. Um, and yeah, it's just kind of tracks where we expected them to be good year this year. Brazil being the obvious example, they just weren't, and it was it was a very curious thing to to see. It's in that respect, the new regulations have shaped things up, but perhaps too much in a weird way there. Mm. I think there's... It's Yeah, it's interesting to have seen them tumble back so much, but hopefully they'll get themselves on... Which again, it's weird to say because tumbling back for them is still P2 in the championship and P3 for Lewis. So it's... And again, makes the statistic and their performance both that much more impressive and surprising. Yeah. They're kind of... They're kind of the Formula 1 equivalent of sticking a piece of toast on a cat and chucking up in the air and we've created a vacuum. Mm. Seeing which way it eventually lands, if it ever does. But um, we've sort of, we've found the the paradigm where Mercedes are somehow great, but not great, which is interesting. Um, another thing that's been missing from the podium this season has been a woman. Previously is we've had obviously female members from all the teams come up onto the podium when they have been, when they've won. But Red Bull 
didn't send anyone up this year and I think when Ferrari won I think it was fair enough for them to send up their team principal but because it was probably going to be their only chance for some time so that's that's quite a shocking thing we've always taken a step back when it comes to that sort of thing and you do kind of have to look at Red Bull for that because no one else has really had much an opportunity to to do much about that so the fact that of all the races they've won and they didn't think to put up a woman at least once especially when they've got Hannah Schmidt there you'd think at the very least, put her up there. You know, yeah. it's it seems a no-brainer for so many reasons, and it's just disappointing. I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed. Lots of other people are mad, and rightly so. But I'm going to take the parental high route here and say, you've really done bad, there, kiddo. Yeah, I think they could have gone down, even if it was very much the sort of the performative feminism of simply putting a woman up there to say they'd done it. But even they could have at least put Max's mum up there because she's obviously responsible for his racing genetics more than Joss is with how much better she was at racing than he was back in the day. She was Eddie Jordan and everyone else. So, you know. Yeah. I mean, can you, can your parents go up onto the podium? That's an interesting question. We'll research that for another time. Why not? It'd be great. Make them a team representative and just mac a t-shirt on them. Job done. Yeah, very true. Um, so that's an interesting thing but when it comes to sort of the actual racing action there's one thing I do want to know which is positions gained and this throws up some interesting questions based on sort of not only qualifying but also how drivers perform during the race um, most positions gained across the season goes to Perez 104 positions gained across the season Stroll 58 gained across the season Verstappen 42 Joe 39 and Sargent 33 Joe and Sargent isn't overly surprising if you start at the back you've got more opportunity to get past people and make yeah. overtakes and equally drives ahead and retire you'll make up places that way let's show how many times Perez started at the back of 104 yeah this is the thing like Perez obviously wasn't on it when it came to qualifying but given the rocket ship of a car he had he was able to make it up in the races which is why he's got a number that's nearly double the next person on this list, which is Stroll, who was very much in the same boat, certainly which at the start of the year. Sense. Yeah. yeah. Unable to really get it down in qualifying and then made up for it in the race just by simply having a quick car. Verstappen's, I can only think of being those times when he wasn't able to get a good qualifying, like Miami, where Charles Leclerc crashed out and denied him a good running Q3. Like, uh, I'm trying to think, I think potentially that. And then you've got like Sandport and Singapore, where you're either dealing with being out of position or you've got weather playing havoc and you've got a surprising number of overtakes going on because everyone's pitting every two minutes. Yeah, or yeah, I think that would be about the only one, possibly Zanport or races where he might have taken a grid penalty for like um, taking newer elements. That'd be the only reason that he's even there. But of course, he made the overtakes because he's in a rocket ship of a car. So it's it's quite interesting to sort of see how even that very easily summates a season. You sort of go, well, there was some absolutely fast cars and then there was some people at the back of the grid. Um, speaking of people at the back of the grid though we get to the Destructors Championship this is accumulated by a chap over on Reddit I can't remember his name but um, the final standings are unsurprisingly Sergeant leads with 4.333 million uh, $4,333,000 worth of damage accrued across the season Verstappen at the bottom uh, he's finally lost something uh, which is because he only racked up $345,000 worth of damage to his car across the season which is quite impressive Russell somehow down in 19th on 670000 one can only assume that's because it only takes into account damage done to his car not other people's yes otherwise I feel like that would that would definitely go up yeah oh. interestingly 
after Sergeant, though, at the top, uh, Sainz, 3,644,000. Perez, 3,224,000. So quite close at the top between Sainz and Perez as well, which shows that they might have been pushing a little bit beyond their comfort zones in their cars this season to have resulted in accidents quite so damaging. Yeah, yeah, no, there's not really much for me to add on to that particular point. I mean, it, it's an interesting way to read into it, but it certainly sort of brings out some pieces here and there. And then again, you look at other drivers like Joe and Sonoda, only costing 1.2 mil a piece. Like, that's not really that bad when you consider the likes of Gasly, Albon, Magnussen, Stroll, Leclerc costing almost sort of over 2 mil in some cases. Leclerc I suppose as well, it's... it's... Being the, the younger, less experienced drivers of the two, especially when you look at the top end, who's been the least expensive in terms of damage, it's all drivers who've been there for quite a while, with the exception of Russell. But Russell's mm. generally been, like, if he if he has any contact with people, it's always a little bit of contact, and he doesn't crash himself all that often. And when he does, it's more just little bits and pieces. It's not, Singapore doesn't happen all the time. And even yes. that wasn't a massive crash. You could still tell that was a car. Um, so it's impressive, I guess, that Joe and Sonoda, maybe they're looking back on all these drivers at the top and thinking, okay, if I'm going to crash, I'm going to do it like that. So minimal damage in terms of cost. And let's face it, at this point, Yuki's crashed so much in his first season that he's probably used to doing the opposite by now. Like, yeah, okay, I shouldn't do this. Yeah, Yuki has finessed the ability to have an inexpensive crash, which is quite interesting. Um, we'll do some other sort of team head-to-heads, and this one looks more at the driver's point shares, and leading that, unsurprisingly, similar to qualifying, it's Alex Albon with 96% of the points haul for Williams, Hulkenberg in second with 75, Alonso in third with 74, Sonoda 68% of the points at Alpha Tauri over his teammates, the same percentage share uh, sees Norris in fifth, Verstappen, 67% of the points. Bottas, 63% of the points. Hamilton, 57 Gasly, 52 And Leclerc, 51 So who surprises you there most of all when it comes to sort of taking the big points halls? I don't think any of them do, to be honest. I think maybe Norris at 68%, just because Piastri's been so strong this year. But I think it's easy to forget about the first half of the year where the car wasn't there yet. Um, and then obviously Norris got more podiums than Piastri. I think everyone just kind of, we expect it from Norris and we expect more from him in some ways. Whereas Piastri, we knew he was good, but we weren't quite sure what was going on, especially when the car wasn't that great. We thought, how are they going to be able to extract stuff out of it? Is, is he going to do what Alonso did back in the McLaren in the Honda days? And then it was just kind of when he got the car that was a little bit better, he was able to utilize that perfectly. But by then, I'm guessing the golf was too big to, to match up. And also, Norris is then doing what you know he's at the base level capable of. Yeah, I think there's the interesting one for me there, though, is Bottas on 63% of the points. Well, I would have potentially anticipated him having a few more. A lot less, I suppose. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I was assuming he would have a slightly more dominant season over Joe than the. I was expecting couple. less, to be honest, because I'm just so used to him not finishing races. At uh, this and point, so, possibly. Yeah. So it's kind of one thing, but I guess just Joe wasn't able to capitalize on scoring points when Bottas didn't finish, so that when he did, he got more than Joe or Joe didn't score. So it kind of, mm-hmm. you may finish more races, but that doesn't mean you're going to score points. 
yeah, not necessarily finishing in the points. And of course, one final sort of statistic before we move on to some more sort of analytical bits. Um, it is, of course, 79 days until lights out and away we go at the Bahrain Grand Prix. I do have uh, some, I did have a 1.8 timer on here, giving me the full sort of hours of it, but 79 days, at least at the time of recording, until it's lights out and away we go at the Bahrain Grand Prix. Do you think you're excited for it already? Are you looking forward to a slightly better season in 2024? I'm looking forward to the idea of a better season in 2024 if we get that remains to be seen. And I'm not yet looking forward to it, to be perfectly honest. I've not had enough distance from 2023 yet. I'm grateful that there's 79 days between now and Bahrain. And undoubtedly, when we... Not necessarily the liveries, actually. I'm not expecting much from the liveries next year. But maybe when we get a bit of testing, when we see if anyone's been able to do anything over the winter to at least tease us a bit in the way Aston Martin did at the beginning of this year with their testing performance in terms of getting close to Red Bull, then I think I'll slowly get there. But I think I probably won't get excited for it until three or four races in where I'll be able to decide if I want to get excited for it or not because I'll have an idea of what we're expecting. I think 2023 has shown in the numerous ways that you you read out just now that how dominant Red Bull are and how much of a goal all the other teams have to the bridge in order to catch up to them and not just catch up but then beat them at least more than once, which is all we which is how low the bar is from, from this year. So no, I'm not looking forward to it just yet, but uh, I don't doubt that when the lights do go out of Bahrain for a couple hours at least. I'll be like, well, you know, anything could happen. And it usually does. Fantastic. So we'll move from the numbers and the statistics into something a little less quantifiable. And that, of course, as we have with our regular review podcasts, are the winners and spinners section. Um, Timo, we'll start with you. Who was your winner of the season? It was hard to think of one for a moment just because everyone had all right seasons if you look outside of Max Verstappen but it's kind of it, it's tricky but I think for reasons that I said earlier Oscar Piastri for me he's got to be the winner of the season because he did prove more or less from the off that he could get at all of his mistakes and there weren't many of them out of the way early doors when the car was terrible and didn't really matter too much and then when the car was upgraded a bit and not even necessarily when it was great, but just when opportunities came his way, he could absolutely capitalise on them. And whilst it was only a sprint race win, it's still a race win for the sake of this argument. And he's got one of those over Lando, which does amuse me so very, very much. And he would win just because of that. If Even if he'd been terrible for the rest of the season, he gets my vote for that one. And if this is how he's starting, I'm looking forward to seeing where we go next with him. And my call will be, not only does he win a Grand Prix race before Lando Norris, he will win a championship before Lando Norris. I think that's, given his performance this season, is it's not unfair. <laughs> if I'm going to be very ballsy, but also depressing for any Ferrari fans listening, I think he'll win a championship before Ferrari too. Yeah, I can't argue against that. Despite being a big Ferrari fan, I cannot argue that given the form we've seen, certainly of McLaren, the fact that how fast and hard they're chasing down that front pack, we're going to see them possibly overtake Ferrari next season. I'm hoping Ferrari pull something out of the bag. I'm hoping they... Which, which I must also just point out about McLaren. 
what a hell of a 180 I've had from the start of the year where I pretty much looked at them after Bahrain and went, how fucked are they? And I now have to kind of walk back my words ever so slightly. Or it was incredibly tough love and they listened to me. Yeah, possibly. I could have gone either way really with that one. It could have been the tough love. It could have been the fact that you might have just had to eat a colossal portion of humble pie and go, actually, they were able to resuscitate that season. And I think I, yeah, I think I inspired them. Yeah, you can keep thinking that. I think uh, Oscar Piastri's work certainly, though, went a long way to that. And I think he obviously got Rookie of the Year. I think it uh, makes a hell of a lot of sense that he attained that award. And um, yeah, he was only really up against uh, Sergeant Reese, Sergeant, technically Lawson as well. Um, but yeah, his performances across the board were undeniable, really. When it comes to my winner of the season, though, I think I've gone for the obvious choice. And I think it's it's for all the reasons I've already sort of gone through in the sort of stats section, which is it's Max Verstappen. He, he has driven pretty much the perfect season. Nothing that happened this year negative was his fault. I no, think. I mean, it, it's a very rude one option, but you can't fault it for plethora of reasons that, that we were saying about earlier, statistics. Yeah, it's 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 undeniable it is quite literally faultless and i think for that you can't deny him the accolade of certainly being the driver of the season and yeah for just simply being the guy man he was a, a worthy world champion this year even if it was a bit of an easy world championship by any metric on the flip side of that coin the spinners of the season timo who might yours be I was thinking about this and I thought as funny as it would be to say Lando Norris and as route one again but perfectly logically as it would be to go with your option I thought and again Perez was tempting but he didn't get hit with the driver's championship so he didn't really spin too badly in the grand scheme of things and whilst this is also easy cannon fodder Lance Stroll has to be the spinner because when you look at what Fernando Alonso has been able to do with that car this year I really, yet again, I'm going to make the point of I don't know what else has to be demonstrated that he doesn't deserve to be in Formula 1. He should have at the very least been on the podium once this year sometime. And the fact that there was such a massive gap in points between the two of them is mental, but also not surprising at all. And even if he didn't get on the podium, there should have been more points on the board for him. Yeah, I think uh, he's certainly been the disappointment of the season. When, like, like you said, when you look at what Stroll was able to, Alonso was able to achieve with that car, the amount of podiums and how close he came at times to wins and stuff, two hundred six points. The fact that he was at one point battling for third in the drivers' standings, mm-hmm. he looked down to a guy that was just about able to scrape his way into 10th ahead of an Alpine and was beaten by a rookie whose season started out with a retirement of 15th and 8th, 11th and 19th. You're sort of going, oh, really, Lance? Is that the best you're able to do? And the answer is yes. Apparently so, yeah. Like his best finishing position was a fourth. And that was the Australian Grand Prix where... Sainz was disqualified or reti- sort of disqualified from it and um, or penaltyed out of the points rather and so many other drivers ahead of him retired and crashed so th- that's your best result 
it's yeah not even cracking the 100 point barrier either is when your teammate has cracked double that is really saying something and I think this season has been the one that's drawn it into sharp contrast Yours is perhaps more surprising though because we expected better and Obi deserved better yeah, I went for my spinner of the season to be Kevin Magnuson. I know Henry over the Has chap. Um, he will he will not be happy at me he pointing this, this in out. some way, shape, or form. But uh, he's going to be sad about it anyway. Yeah, at three points across the season. You've been sort of beaten by Zhou Guanyu. You've been beaten by Daniel Ricardo, who did so few races, um, and your teammate absolutely trounced you um, with only one finish ahead of uh, in the points. And yeah, I, like Hulkenberg scored nine points. Uh, I think he got one in a sprint race as well. I think he or a few in a sprint race because he came sixth in Austria. Um, but yeah, Magnussen three ten P tens is three points, and it's it's not great when you're one point ahead of the guy that only did five races and was a rookie. Um, it just wasn't the season that we anticipated it being for Magnussen. And yeah, the Haas was a bit of a dog this year. Oh, easily the worst car of the on the field by the end of the year um, with no appreciable sort of development that came through. It, he just made nothing of it. And Hulkenberg really had the measure of him, unfortunately. Yeah, which says a lot through Hulkenberg as well because he came in after a number of years out, if we talk about it properly. And just kind of cranked him and very much deserving his contract. And I'm not saying that um, Kemag doesn't deserve the contract for next year because the consistency makes sense there. Perhaps they need to do something and it's not going to be rookies. But I don't think anyone was expecting Hulk to come in that strong. And it's yet more proof that I really hope that Ask can give him a better car or that he can get into a better car at some point because I would love to see what he can do. Yeah, because they are both very talented and very fast drivers when they're given a competent chassis. But as soon as you give them something that's recalcitrant and a bit of a tip, they start to struggle. Uh, like you look back to Magnussen when he started out at McLaren, he was fantastically fast and very good. And you look at Hulkenberg whenever he was given a decent chassis, like that time he stepped in at Racing Point when they were sort of going mm-hmm. through the tracing point phase and they had a quick car. And he proved that he was a very quick driver and very quickly adapted to it. They are both phenomenal people by the wheel. But it goes to show, if anything, just how bad the Haas has been across the year. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's, it sort of looks like a bit of an oddball one to have as a spinner, but I think that the, once you add the reasoning to it, it very quickly comes into No, no, it makes just, perfect sense. I think, yeah. if, if anything, I saw that and thought it's just a shame that it, that is so justifiable. It is, it, yeah. I think at the end of the day, like you say, yeah, it is also a shame. Like with with, with 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 the spinners, you're normally going at them because they've done something stupid. Last whereas, stroll. yes, you're not going at them whereas, because yeah, you're not going the at them because hasn't they've just out. been disappointing. They've been let down as much as like the the sort of team has let them down. It's just disappointing, really. Um, 
We'll move from the winners and spinners to the overtake of the season. This took a bit of thinking for me. Um, I don't know how much thought you'd pour into your one. I'd have really sort of dive back. My mind just emptied out every overtake the entire season. None of them come to mind. The only thing I could think of was Alonso in Brazil on Perez at the end because it was just so damn funny. Um, But apart from that, right, I need to re-jog my memory slightly here. Mm. And what have you gone for in the end? Well, thanks to a handy reminder, uh, I had a look. And uh, despite Baku not being the most exciting race we've ever had in Baku, Alonso's overtake on signs on a part of the track where it really is not expected to be an overtaking place, but which does come back later on in our Formula 2 chat, which will be in another episode. You can actually overtake uh, on this particular corner. I think it's turn six around there somewhere, I think, turn four or six. Um, and it was just a very nice sublime move on the Ferrari, kind of sandwiching himself between the two of them and signs everything. Oh, crap, you can overtake that. Damn. Yeah, it was a a dive up the inside into a left-hander, so I think it might have been like turn one, two... It was a right turn. Was it right? Okay, so then it would have been turn four, possibly, or five, six, yeah. So, but yeah, it was just sort of a stick it up the inside, absolute send it on the brakes and make it work. And this was very much when Aston Martin was sort of getting to the still in performance envelope. Yeah, it was still good, but other teams were getting good in comparison. And I think Alonso was making, making hay while the sun shone really did with that overtake. And it was really quite quite a good one and very reminiscent of a much younger Fernando Alonso in a much more competitive Renault I dare say You've gone for one that was also very sublime though and was also very very funny because I do remember watching it at the time thinking oh go on get him there and he actually did yeah, this was this for me my overtake of the season is Charles Leclerc on Sergio Perez in Las Vegas um I think Charles Leclerc had some good overtakes in that race alone. There was the brilliant one he had tried on Verstappen around the outside because it sort of came mm. in two stages. He DRS is up to him, tries to get him on the brakes, and Verstappen has clearly outbraked him in the first phase. So Leclerc just lifts off the brakes and gets back ahead. But Verstappen just knows that he'll have the inside line into the turn and Leclerc has to back out of that one. But by that point, Leclerc knows what the surface is like going into was it the final turn like turn 18 19 yeah, in Vegas this year. and um, he knows that he's got what the grip is like going into that and he's clearly thought about it and has sort of been telegraphing this for laps before and then on the final it was kind lap, of a curious one because you're looking at it thinking I think he surprised us as much as himself but he actually did it and made it work because everyone just I think we all looked at that thought oh no he's too far back and then he went for it not only did he go for it but he made it yeah, and comes like, from oh, nowhere on Perez. Perez, the Mexican Minister for Defence. And Charles Leclerc just shoots one up the inside and vanishes. And yeah, while Perez has the power to chase him down and gets him just after the line, crucially he gets him just after the line. Leclerc pips him to it and takes the points. And it was, yeah, just a case in point for the fact that of just how good a racer and a sort of strategist there is within Charles Leclerc. And I think the day he is given a competitive Ferrari is a day that Formula One will change. Although, like you've already said, that day could come after Oscar Piastri has won a championship. Yes, which who knows how soon or late that could be in the grand scheme of things. It's very hard to tell. Depends on Red Bull in some ways. 
really does depend on what Red Bull are able to achieve next year. Um, another interesting one that I want to talk about is crash of the season. And not necessarily because excitement of watching bits of carbon fiber spiraling across the racetrack, but more because of what it means for the season as a whole. And I think we've both picked races that have, or crashes rather, that have a bit more to say than simply ooh and ah. So team, I'll go for yours first. Yeah, I was thinking in a few of the more recent races came to mind, Norris and Mustard just being a good example because of the camera angle that we first got for it was like, oh Christ, what was that? And then it was like, oh, Norris, right. And ooh, bloody Ellie was close to Piastri. But I think just for how to sum up a season, how to sum up, I'm really coming for the championship this year and then coming P2 and the points difference between you and first place would have been enough for Max to secure the championship anyway. It has to be Paris's turn one crash in Mexico because only Paris could do that at his home race and be out that quickly and just, of course he did. Of course he did. So that is crash of the season because it just works on so many different levels for describing 2023 yeah it's that metaphor analogy sort of you can read into it and describe the season from one crash which is sort of what I was hoping it, it, it's to like get. a massive franchise you can watch as much of it as you want and there's something there for everyone you can go really deep or you can just look at it surface level there's going to be all kinds of levels of satisfaction to get out of it yeah it, it's a crash for GCSE English teachers they, there's a lot to pick away from it yes yeah the driver was sad because he was in a blue car um, and of course Perez was quite sad after that because of course he'd crashed out in a blue car um, for me though my crash of the season is Ocon into Gasly in Australia and I think it's quite obvious sort of what the the deeper meaning from this one is because of course it's the fact that Alpine sort of started off with this sort of or every everyone started off with this concept of Alpine being a bit of a firecracker we had two drivers that didn't really get along they seem to have gotten along by the end of the season bear in mind they both seem to be sort of on pretty good terms mutual with suffering yeah mutual suffering because Alpine just sort of never really got good they just had the world's most mediocre season which is quite disappointing in a way yeah, but as we were saying at the top of the podcast with the personnel changes and whatnot, it also was not very surprising. And I think the only thing interesting thing they had for them at the start of the season was the fact that these two were meant to be quite argy-bargy with each other and then nothing really happened there. You've got a bit of team radio occasionally when one of them would ask why you've prioritised the other. Usually Gatley asking why Ocon's ahead of him for no apparent reason, especially when they've had such a mediocre season. and. That was about it. Just wasn't that interesting. And this was kind of it's it's demised their season as well, in the same way that Perez's did in Mexico. Ocanizgati in Australia was very much yeah, this is how your season's gonna go. Yeah, it was it what it, it is that crash that perfectly summates their sort of their efforts across the year. The same could be said for again, I sort of jotted down a few other ones that are worth mentioning. And um Norris in Vegas, I think that crash was very much uh, sort of a testimony to the supposed excitement of Vegas and equally the rush to build it, the fact that it was a very unleveled surface and the fact that we were able to just sort of completely bottom out a car to the point that it suffered a huge high-speed crash. Albon and the Hasses turn one in Brazil was sort of very much Alex Albon battling against everything this year. Um, ultimately, for now, it was it achieved a lot for Williams, but at times it looked like very much an uphill battle. Um, Ocon, Hulkenberg and Perez in Qatar's sprint 
three drivers you're not expecting to come together and certainly not in a manner quite like that. No, but also at that point, it wasn't surprising considering Perez was one of the three. It was just kind of, who's Perez going to crash into this week? And here are the two lucky winners. Yes, yeah, it was uh, oh, but not very lucky in that instance for Ocon nor Hulkenberg, because I think Hulkenberg got away with it quite lightly, despite the fact that he was very much the sandwich in that um, former um, racing point driver crash. Um, Strollin, uh, Stroll gets three mentions actually on my little jottings list here, which was Stroll into Alonso in Bahrain, which was quite the interesting sort of crash tap nudge. Um, Stroll into the barriers at Spa in the sprint shootout, and then Stroll into the barriers in Singapore Q1. Uh, which one of those Stroll shunts uh, stands out most to you? Uh, I know it's like trying to ask someone to pick a favourite child, but... He's got to be the first one because only he would somehow crash into Alonso at the first race of the season when there's so much promise coming your way and then you think, oh my God, he's going to ruin this for everyone before we even got going. Why? Equally, and it's it, more thanks to the team and Alonso salvaging that rather than him just not doing a, a bad enough or good enough job there. And equally, it speaks a lot for how everything else panned out because, of course, Alonso asks, who crashed into me and doesn't get told until after the race yes. was his boss's son. Which is probably wise. Yeah. So that it, it, you but can also make... very amusing to hear the team radio silence going, how the hell do we not tell him? But how do we tell him? What, what do we do here, guys? We don't know. We'll tell you later. Uh, it's very much sort of, again, one of those crashes that was quite sort of derivative of the entire season for certain drivers I think it's quite interesting there and the other ones I had on my list were uh, Leclerc in Miami which was an interesting crash I think it was Leclerc driving hard to try and get into the championship fight that at that point in time and what it ended up doing was costing uh, Verstappen pole which is quite remarkable and then of course De Vries in Baku which would have been um, if you can wind the clock back to when Nick De Vries raced in Formula 1 um was a fairly hefty shunt from De Vries head on into the barriers and I think this is where things started to unwind for him yeah it definitely didn't help and I think he was not necessarily already on thin ice there but it uh, it just didn't help is the very short version of that one yeah I think it, it sort of set the tone for things to come unfortunately for De Vries and his uh, career within Formula 1 certainly as the driver at Alpha Tauri so we'll move on to our next section, which is the season predictions review. And this was at the start of the year. We, the three, I say that we, the three of us picked a load of predictions. And also we had a variety of guests who phoned in their predictions as well. So we had everything from, he says, flicking over to the right bit of the spreadsheet, our three bold predictions, drivers who will score podiums. We had to pick the, the team standings, the bottom five drivers, the top five drivers. Uh, then, of course, we had Rookie Watch. So we pitted Lando against Piastri, Albon versus Sarge. And Sonoda against De Vries. Of course, we didn't really know how that was going to pan out. Also, after I think our, the uh, problem with all of these, the most was for my predictions at least, was that I was anticipating a much more interesting season than the one we got. I think a lot and of us might kind of, have there was there was perhaps disappointment in the second half of the season in 2022, but there was enough gumption, I suppose, that and enough stuff from preseason testing for us to think maybe, Just maybe, and then no. Not even slightly. 
Yeah, so of course we had the French feud. So I asked people to pick the points difference between Ocon and Gasly. I asked for people to predict who will have the most DNFs. I asked, will Las Vegas suck? Uh, wanted people to predict which race will have the quickest pit stop, their favourite race, their least favourite race, and simply to guess Bottas's points. Then we got some interesting ones across the board. There were some interesting predictions. Um, interestingly, very few people... It was sort of a mixed bag when it came to actually picking the winning driver. You and I were both quite optimistic with picking a Ferrari driver myself Leclerc you so I think Carlos Sainz yes yeah which um, to be fair I, the only solace I can take from that is the fact that I chose the one other driver outside of Red Bull to win a race this is very true you were sort of on on a roll with that one Ellie May got that one correct um, across the board picking the top and five bottom drivers it proved to be quite tricky actually a lot of people um, didn't think very highly of Aston Martin coming into it there's a lot of Lance Strolls very low down in the list um, and a lot of it yeah, a lot of interesting people sort of picking people here, there and everywhere over other people. I think the most interesting correct prediction uh, comes in the form of uh, Kevin Magnussen and Nico Hulkenberg being uh, correctly predicted as 16th and 19th by uh, Magdalena with uh, 16th for Hulkenberg. It would have been funny if it was Henry. <laughs> yes, and uh, Alice picking Kevin Magnussen for 19th. When we come to Henry, actually, he did not get... Uh, any of his Haas-based predictions correct, unfortunately <laughs> for him. Uh, he obviously put right. Haas, his Haas driver somewhere between P15 and P6 as they appear nowhere in the bottom five nor the top five. At least he didn't put them P1 and P2. He was, was trying to be realistic a bit. He was, he was trying to be a little bit realistic, though he did put in um, Haas would get a podium this year, which they, of course, did not. Um, so... Uh, didn't really pan out for him there. Uh, the most interesting one, though, was the in every driver that will score a podium this season. This is quite a fun one to keep track of because, of course, there is the added risk of if you didn't pick a driver that would get a podium, I also docked you points. Um, so, Something I probably don't remember from pre-season at all. But... Yeah, so I did quite well on this one within reason obviously I picked Leclerc, Sainz, Hamilton, Russell Norris, Verstappen, Perez uh, Ocon, Gasly and Alonso all of whom scored podiums I also picked Bottas and Ricardo to score podiums neither of whom did I also neglected to pick Oscar Piastri who of course scored podiums so uh, yeah lost points in those cases you did alright you had pretty much the same pick as me you remembered to pick uh, Oscar Piastri failed to pick Lambert Norris <laughs> I think that was me already at the pre-season point going oh wouldn't it be funny though yeah uh, you've also picked Bottas and Albon to score podiums neither of whom did you also neglected to pick Gasly to score a podium which yeah, was yeah and again to be fair if you're Alpine or Gasly if you're being kind to yourselves you're probably going to agree with me at the start of the season and again where was his podium what was it Zandvoort uh, Gasly I, yeah, was, he also because there was technically his... two Ocon podiums, depending if you uh, are the people in charge who are putting the names up as the drivers walk onto the podium. But yes. uh, in terms of where it actually was, I think it was Zandvoort, and I think whilst a podium is a podium, circumstances did help a little bit that day because Ocon was in Monaco, I believe. So yeah, that Ocon, makes sense. It was two races where they definitely capitalised on the opportunity presented to yeah. them. I mean, to um, be fair. Gasly did also podium at the Belgian sprint. So we knew he had that P3 ability in him. Yeah, but it's a sprint race. 
Yeah, he had that dog in him. He just sort of deployed it on the right weekend eventually. Uh, most interesting selections for scoring podiums have to go Ellie May, who picked Nico Hulkenberg. Ben Wellam, who picked Kevin Magnussen to score a podium. Um, Shannon, who picked Nick DeVries, as did Magdalena, which is interesting, as did Alice. So some interesting ones for podiums. And the most interesting of ignored ones, um, Alonso Perez was ignored at one point for a podium. <laughs> which I cannot Quite believe, uh, Magdalena. Um, <laughs> and uh, another Alonso as well. So, yes, I mean, an interesting mix of ignored and chosen when it comes to the podiums. Pretty much everyone um, said that Albon was going to outscore Sargent, so clean sweep across the board there. You predicted Piastri would outscore Lando, so you did not get points for that one. Um, I still want to be right about it. Fraser fell into the same hole, unfortunately. So he he also picked Piastri over Lando. It'll but, happen uh, next year. Yeah, everyone else got Norris correct there. And a lot of people, myself included, picked De Vries outscoring Sonoda. Um, <laughs> the only person to get that correct was Fraser, who picked Sonoda over De Vries. So a uh, very interesting result in that one. Yeah, I mean, in, on paper, coming into it, you've got a guy who has won two championships versus a guy who spun a lot during his first season and was already questioning why he got a contract extension. So you could see the logic from most people. The logic was there, certainly. Um, the French feud one was very interesting because there was a good spread of numbers. Um, I picked 35-point gap between the French drivers of Ocon and Gasly. What was the gap? Because, let's face it, I don't know what I've got on my head. Do you, pick t- do you want to take a guess? No, I'm saying what would the actual point difference? Yeah, take a guess. Oh, I've no idea. 20. Four. Four. Okay, yeah. What did I guess? You guessed 20. <laughs> oh, I guessed 20 as well. That's quite funny. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think the lowest slash closest guess would have been uh, L.A. Wilshaw, who and uh, Henry Hastrap, who both picked 12 for that, but unfortunately were essentially a multiple of three out. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so, so it's, it's, there's not really hard points for that one, unfortunately. No, I did not award any points for that one. Uh, same as I didn't award any points for the, which driver will have the most DNFs. I picked Sergeant, you picked Stroll, Ellie May went Yuki, pretty mainstream options there. Who did? Fairly, uh, in the end, it was Ocon, seven. That's a crunch. Yeah, which uh, I don't think is wholly surprising we get into the slightly more sort of circumstantial questions here which was will las vegas suck and this involved me after the las vegas grand prix then messaging a lot of people going so what did you think of that don't ask me why um and i said the las vegas grand prix will suck but i sort of reneged on that actually i quite enjoyed it as a grand prix so i docked myself yeah, it doesn't work your one. prediction though <laughs> no you said that it wouldn't suck and then also on the podcast said that it didn't suck so i've awarded you the points for that one so congratulations yeah again i was i think for, for these ones for, for rating a grand prix I, I can only take it at the race value because if i take it at everything from when we rock up there on whichever day thursday or friday till the end of it i would not be saying yes for many of them oh yeah some of them were Kind of dull. Certainly, the showmanship of Vegas was a bit. Okay, a lot of them were already losing on the racing front, as it was. So the fact that Vegas is only redeeming quality was the race itself was quite amusing and typical at the same time. Uh, this was very much a question of whether or not people were able to predict their emotions based around Las Vegas as well, which is quite mm. interesting. Um, quickest pit stop only. 
Two people got that one correct across the entire season, which was, of course, McLaren. That again went to Haschap Henry and uh, Ben Wellham, who predicted both as McLaren. Ben Wellham, I'm concerned. This is a man that you and I introduced to Formula One in the 2022 season. We're both beaten by him in the season-long predictions there. And this year, he's come out pretty pretty nifty when it comes to uh, scoring points, actually. I think Ben was our season-long champion on 69 points. This is a man in just his second season of Formula One. Weirdly makes sense, though, at the same time. It's kind of the less committed you are, the, the more kind of, not ballsy, but also semi-logical you're going to be because you just pick names that look right and sound right to you and you base it off no real knowledge whatsoever. Yeah, I'm not entirely certain how he pulled that one out of the bag. But yeah, he got uh, 19 correct answers, 26 incorrect. I pointed five points for every correct answer. So he scored a total of 69 overall. Uh, The highest out of the three hosts was Ellie May on 52, correct? Um, Myself on 44 in second place and you in third on 20, I'm afraid. I was too optimistic about the season. So I don't blame myself for that one. I blame Formula One. Yeah, it was uh, not a strong round of year-long predictions from you. Some other interesting ones across uh, 22. So you were beaten by Jacob, friend of the podcast. Did anyone get less than me is the important question. Uh, no, no one that I've got a full set of answers back from got less than you. So you're unfortunately <laughs> the lowest ranked of all of the people. Um, yeah, beaten by Fraser, beaten by Henry, beaten by Shannon, beaten by Magdalena. Uh, yeah, just a, a pretty abysmal... Um, result there can't have it all you can't you certainly can't I'd rather be ambitious with the predictions and lose outright and be like well that's a, a season for letting me down badly then everyone else is going a bit more than one about it yeah, if you, my season had happened as these predictions would have played out how interesting would it have been very interesting I think at the end of the day your predictions were ambitious but rubbish uh, which is a perfect point really to wrap up this uh, season review on I think um, unless you've got any final bits to add no I think that also just encapsulated the 2023 season in, in a phrase yeah ambitious but rubbish uh, so we'll start our conclusion which of course we obviously say a big thank you to our listeners uh, where we are still surprisingly popular in Barbados if anyone is actually listening in Barbados please let us know where we rank on like motorsport podcasts in Barbados it'd be great to see how I think I looked at this once we were quite high up yeah we were like in top five for sport oh they were we are weird but one of Barbados' top five sporting podcasts. Um, so if, and a big thank you goes out to our listeners in Fredericton, in New Brunswick, Canada. And of course, our Slovenian listeners. There is a large group of you in Ljubljana. So uh, Vesel Bocic, I think, uh, which should translate to Merry Christmas or Happy Christmas. Um, in the meantime, Timo, where can the people find you? You can find me over on the Curbs, on the Curbs Hub Chat, the Nigel RX podcast, Is It Fast, and Paddock Sorority, and of course Instagram, because I'm always, well not always, but I'm I'm consistently there. How about yourself? Um, Maybe I'll get an invite to the On The Curbs pub chat at some point in time. Um, in the meantime, though, you can find me on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok as at Jesse on Cars. And you can also find me writing for Classic Car Weekly. Our bumper Christmas issue has gone on sale today, literally the day we're recording this. Um, so go and pick that up. It's out for two weeks on shop shelves and has all manner of Christmas countdowns and the celebrations of all things old car in 2023. So uh, please do that. Support print media. Uh, we'll be back 
shortly, I guess, for a review of all the feeder series action from across the year. And if not, we'll be back in the new year with um, some more motorsport-based nonsense and looking ahead to the 2024 F1 season. Mm-hmm.